Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre, with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, author and longtime Rolling Stone contributing editor, Anthony DeCurtis. His book, Lou Reed, A Life, was published by Little, Brown & Company in 2017. For more than 30 years, Grammy Award-winning writer Anthony DeCurtis has produced probing articles about rock and roll icons. And DeCurtis is convinced that Velvet Underground lead singer and songwriter Lou Reed is one of music's most influential figures. I would make the case that Other than the Beatles and Bob Dylan and James Brown, no one is as influential a figure as Lou Reed. You know, with Lou and the Velvet Underground, they kind of invented the idea of alternative rock and punk rock and every other variation of, you know, rock music that isn't exclusively geared uh, to commercial success. You know, so if you take a line from Iggy Pop to David Bowie to... R.E.M. to Nirvana to The National to My Morning Jacket to, you know, I could go on a long, long list. All of those people owe a debt to Lou Reed. And so that was a story, it seemed to me, that needed to be told. Plus, he had an incredibly fascinating life. Uh, It was complicated. It wasn't always easy to write about. Uh, he wasn't always the nicest person, right. but, you know, it was a deep three-dimensional um, human story that I think provides a really important context for understanding his work. Well, I want to get into the work in a minute, but I, I want to go back to your introduction when you say that you were fascinated by his um, contradictions. Oh, yeah. And that he had plenty of them. Um, yeah, that was the <laughs> whole thing. Yeah, there's kind of a Freudian idea called overdetermination, which essentially means that um, a person can be motivated by more than one motivation, which we know. But the interesting part of it is that those motivations can also be entirely contradictory. So that you could be motivated by love and hate at the same time and in the same action. And that idea carried me through much of this book because without it, it was impossible to make sense of him. You know, and any time you encountered a certain aspect of who he was, I learned to then look for the opposite at mm. that at that same time. Right, because he could be incredibly thoughtful and caring, but then he was also very, very cruel. Extremely cruel, Uh, and often unnecessarily so. You know, he would joke about it, but, you know, he invented this character called Lou Reed, but even that had a kind of doubleness to it. He would talk about Lou Reed as if it were a part he was playing. But at other moments, you know, he would say, look, you know, these records are autobiographical. They they come from my life. And, you know, obviously, you know, you change details and things get altered to make the song work, but it's all coming out of lived experience. So even that had a, a two-part element. It's, you know, that kind of 
notion of the mask that you put on that sticks to you. With your work with the Rolling Stone, yeah. um, you obviously met him and interviewed him several times, yep. right? Mm-hmm. And you also say in the book that you had no intention of writing his biography. Correct. So what changed? And did he have to leave us? Did he have to die for you to decide, well, no, this is a story that needs to be told? Uh, yes, he had to die. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't have written the book while he was alive. It just would have been too difficult and he wouldn't have been happy. I mean, he never wanted anybody to do books. So, I mean, some had already been written and you know, they made him very unhappy. You know, I just didn't want to have a fight, I guess. You know, I didn't want to write about somebody that was telling people not to talk to me and had thought he was my friend and now he would see this as a betrayal. And people have said to me, (laughs) well, you know, it kind of is a betrayal. And, you know, if you wrote the book, you know, what difference does it make if you did it after he died and wasn't there to say those things to you? And I suppose my response to that was, is that I felt he deserved an important book. And if he wasn't there to stop it, that I was the best person to do it. But, you know, look, there are certain wishes, I suppose, that you honor better in in the breach than in the observance, as Shakespeare said. I mean, I think that Lou saw himself as a literary figure, Uh, as much as a musician, if not more so. And, you know, Delmore Schwartz, the poet, was his teacher and mentor. James Atlas wrote a brilliant biography of Delmore Schwartz. I think Lou deserved a book like that. You know, it doesn't make me happy to think that it would have, you know, probably would have bothered him. But, you know, I feel like I did the right thing. You know, I was... Um, I knew all the worlds that he moved in. I grew up in Greenwich Village, you know, where Lou lived for many years and certainly delved deep into the nether world of what that world is. Um, you know, I have a PhD in literature. I'm, you know, I've written about rock and roll for, you know, 30, 40 years. Um, I knew him. So from that standpoint, you know, I felt almost like it was a duty you know I mean when Lou died there was this huge outpouring and uh you know it surprised me and honestly absolutely truly no one would have been more surprised by that than Lou Reed I think he felt you know I guess that time had passed him by a bit you know Mm -hmm. but in fact his importance became very very clear at that point and I felt well, okay, now there's an audience for this. One of his fellow bandmates in the Velvet Underground um, said about Reed's lyrics that they were literate, well-expressed, tough, and novelistic. Would you agree? Oh, yeah. No, that's a very... John Cale said that, and that's a very accurate description. Um, Lou defined a certain type of rock lyric. You know, it was almost like, I mean, it was very poetic, but not flowery at all. You know, it's kind of almost hard-boiled noir fiction. You know, and he really tried to distill the emotions and circumstances of his characters so that, you know, there wasn't a lot of 
very elaborate development. His idea was to get it as pithily as he could. As writing, it was very, very strong and essentially didn't exist in the world of rock and roll before him. Hmm. And so that's his lyric sense, but what about his musical sense? And, and how do you write about music for an audience who may not be musicians? <laughs> well, I'm not a musician, <laughs> you know, so that we'll start there. Okay. I mean, look, I responded to a review on Amazon, you know, that somebody wrote yesterday. It was, you know, it was mostly favorable. It was, uh, you know, but he said, look, I'm a musician and Lou was very interested in guitar sounds and, you know, very technical aspects of music. And the writer seemed, this would be me, uh, the writer seems either bored or thinks these things are irrelevant. And, you know, fair enough. You know, I, I couldn't follow Lou when he got into all that stuff. Uh, I feel like Lou used that stuff also as a way to not talk about more personal things. I mean, it's not going to shock anybody to learn if they don't know already that for many, many years he was a terrible drug addict and alcoholic. During that period, he did and said things that I think, although he would never admit this, that he found terribly embarrassing and um, was kind of humiliated by. So when people would bring them up, it would enrage him. I think that accounts for a lot of his attitude towards critics and people who came to interview him. That was always the shadow in the corner. Like if he, for a minute, felt that that's where things were going, he would snap. So to talk about, I don't know, guitar strings or, you know, mic setups and all this other stuff was a way of canceling all that out. And I'm not saying he didn't really care about it because I know people who know about that stuff who would have great conversations with him. But I also feel like he made kind of emotional use of it to eat up interview time with stuff mm -hmm. like that. And I will say, in all honesty, that probably the most typical you know, editorial comment I've gotten over the years has been, can you say something about the music? You know, because I'm always writing about the lyrics. But, you know, as I said, I think for all of his interests, and obviously uh, as a songwriter, he was very interested in music and sound, um, Lou, I think, ultimately saw himself as a writer. I mean, there's a one story in the book. Where he published, well, he actually published two collections of his lyrics, but when the first one came out called Between Thought and Expression, he was doing uh, a signing at a bookstore. And for Lou, I mean, these things were not pleasures, you know. He wasn't somebody who was sitting around gabbing to people. And, but, you know, inevitably people are, like, telling him how much his words meant to them and you know, how important his lyrics were and what he had to say and all this. And when he went back to the green room, this person who was there said he just started crying. Mm. And I think that was because it was about his words and that he felt like at that moment it wasn't about what a great riff he'd written or how that guitar sounded or any of that. It was about words on a page. Mm. And... I will say, though, like, Lou loved pop music. Lou grew up with doo-wop and loved doo-wop. Lou, the first job he had out of college was writing for some, you know, little fly-by-night knockoff record company that if surf music was happening, it was like, go in a room and write a bunch of surf songs. And that was like Lou's second college education because 
he wrote beautiful melodies and mm -hmm. really knew how to write great riffs. I mean, he, I mean, the, the riff to Sweet Jane is like one of the most indelible riffs in all of rock and roll. And so I'm, I'm, I, in, in emphasizing his lyrics, you know, I'm, you know, that's my world and I, you know, I would do that, but you know, I certainly don't mean to, um, lower in, in anybody's estimation the quality of the music that he wrote because it was significant, of course. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, a lot of biographers have a hard time dealing with the personal lives of their yeah. subjects, particularly in the case of, uh, you know, drug use, depression, yep. and sexuality. And yep. his sexuality seemed to be fairly fluid. So. Fairly <laughs> fluid, I would say that. So how did you decide that you were going to deal with that because those were all important elements in his life. Yeah, I mean, I felt he'd written about all that stuff, you know, in songs. So I really felt that in order for people to understand where those songs came from, you know, they had to learn about some of that. I mean, he had a whole gay life, you know, but he also married one, two, three different women you know, he lived for a time with what we would now call a transgender person, even though, you know, she didn't fully transition from male to female. Um, she present often presented uh, as a woman. And that relationship in particular was one of the revelations of the book. I mean, I knew about it. He wrote about it. He dedicated songs to her. Uh, her name was Rachel. Her given name was Richard Humphreys. But I thought, you know, when I first heard about it, I thought like, oh, Lou is crazy. He was up for anything, you know, <laughs> boys and girls. And sure, why not? But, you know, when I when I dove into it and learned about it and talked to people who knew them together, that was a really profound relationship. It was as real as any of his other ones. That was kind of an education for me you know, to, to really see um, the depth of emotion that resided there. And so working my way through all that, I mean, you know, sex is pretty interesting. <laughs> you know, it just, it just is. Sex and, sells. Yeah, well, and, you know, it's, there's a reason for that, you know. It was fascinating. I mean, then after the book even came out, I remember this one day, <laughs> I was in Los Angeles, and I was doing book stuff. And uh, a friend of mine who was gay and out, and you know, called me up. And a little bit lectured me, you know, like, because he wanted to claim Lou for gay people. And found that the Lou who liked Rachel, who was born a man presented as a woman that that diminished Lou's gayness you know and so an hour later I was having lunch with Lou's college girlfriend very intelligent charming woman who was very close to him he wrote a song called pale blue eyes about her you know wrote I'll be your mirror about her loved her for many years and she you know i thought of you as my mountaintop i thought of you as my peak i thought of you as everything i had but couldn't keep that was shelly and shelly you know i'm having lunch with shelly and like she goes there's no way lou was gay that's ridiculous you know lou liked women that was his primary contact 
So what am I to make of all this? You know, I mean, I'm sitting there going, okay, you know. So getting in there and trying to sort that out was you know, kind of what you're looking for if you, you know, you take on a project. What was your writing process? You know, I teach writing and it's nothing that I would recommend to any of my students. I mean, I wrote this book like I was writing a long magazine article. I mean, which, you know, I didn't outline anything. Nothing? Nothing, not one, not one single thing. <laughs> oh wait, though you had to at least provide an outline for your book uh, proposal. No, nope, I got no, nope. I got the deal without a proposal. <laughs> no, nope, I went in and had meetings, and just sold it. Wow. <laughs> you know, um, you know, I, the last I did a book with Clive Davis that was a bestseller. So, I co-wrote Clive's autobiography, the soundtrack of my life. Um. You know, I mean, there was no question I was going to, I could sell a Lou Reed book, you know. But yeah, the problem with that is that I didn't have to do any of that stuff that probably would have made writing it a little bit easier. Um, <laughs> I mean, so I started by just writing. I wrote the ending first. Huh. I wrote the, the chapter called The Aftermath mm -hmm. first. And then I wrote the chapter about an album he made called Songs for Drella, which he did with John Cale, uh, who in the Velvet Underground. And it's an album they made about Andy Warhol after Andy died. Then I think I went back and wrote the section on Transformer, which was his you know, first big solo record produced by David Bowie, Walk on the Wild Sides on that record. Mm -hmm. And then I just started writing forward from there. You know, pretty much wrote, to the end of his life and then went back and wrote the beginning and then I you know I had to write all the growing up stuff and everything which I had great sources for all that so I wasn't nervous about that what advice would you give to a budding or aspiring biographer who's going to take on the life of a famous musician when you wander into somebody's life you know you're wandering into a whole thicket of emotions and everyone around them and who loved him and who couldn't stand him and who was somewhere in the middle of that you know you just really have to I mean seek that out and try to use it but you really have to work on your own honest assessment of how to render this person as accurately as you can and it's not always easy you know, it's it's like walking into a hall of mirrors, you know. You know, it's hard to know yourself. Finding out about another person is a whole other adventure. And, you know, just uh, make sure you're strapped to the saddle. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a ride. And here's Anthony DeCurtis reading from his book, Lou Reed, A Life. Um, this is a section from my book about Lou Reed. Uh, it's about a song called uh, Coney Island Baby, which is about Lou's relationship with um, a transgender hustler named Rachel, uh, with whom he lived openly for three or four years in the um, 70s. Over a spare, meditative, guitar-based drum arrangement, soulful backing vocals, and an impossibly slow tempo, Reed's vocal delivery in the song's verses is essentially a recitation, which lends it an extremely intimate feel, as if he were struggling to find the words for the memories he's recalling, 
giving voice to them in real time as they emerge in his mind. He thinks back to high school and talks about wanting to stand up straight and play football for the coach, the straightest dude he ever knew. He conjures a John Wayne world of stoic masculine virtue, strong, silent, undeniable. In Reed's case, the song seems to be simultaneously about a desire to please and outrage his father, impulses that warred within him his entire life. Against the desire to live up to the standards defined by the coach, Reed presents a haunted vision of a nighttime self alone and lonely in the midnight hour, a morally degraded figure who far from striving to live up to clearly defined principles has put his soul up for sale. The character's sleepless memories drift back not to afternoons on the high school football field, but to all the things that you've done, to having made every different scene, to never being able to be no human being. All those references more lurid and harrowing for remaining entirely unspecified, the listener's imagination all too readily filling in the blanks. As if channeling Travis Bickle and Taxi Driver, the singer declares that New York is something like a circus or a sewer, a moral cesspool in which it's all too understandable that some people have peculiar tastes. Reed ends the song dramatically with the sort of radio dedication he heard so often growing up. I'd like to send this one out to Lou and Rachel and all the kids and PS 192, he intones. Man, I swear I'd give the whole thing up for you. It's unclear what the singer would be willing to give up for his love or for the presumed groundedness, the realness, the normalcy of the kids at PS 192, his ambitions, his fame, his art, his success, all of it. That Reed would bring the deepest and most sentimental of his musical tastes to bear on the relationship with Rachel, going so far as to mention her by name in the title track of his album, suggests the seriousness of his feelings for her. Rachel, described in Rolling Stone as a tall, exotic person with cascading hair, arching eyebrows, and hands whose fragile elegance is enhanced by two glinting diamond rings, has put the heart back into Lou's rock and roll. It would take decades before American culture would begin to grapple with the notion that gay people, let alone transgender people, experience love in anything like the romanticized terms then reserved for heterosexuals. Yet there was Reed doing that on an album released in America's bicentennial year and managing simultaneously to express all his conflicted feelings about his own sexual identity and desires. It is one of his greatest achievements as a songwriter. As vulnerable as he seems in the song, however, Reed heard it as a statement of defiance. Saying I'm a Coney Island baby at the end of that song is like saying I haven't backed off an inch, he said. And don't you forget it. Thank you. That was author Anthony DeCurtis reading from his book, Lou Reed, A Life, published by Little, Brown, and Company in 2017. Anthony DeCurtis's reading and interview were recorded during the Biographers International Organization's annual conference held in May 2018 at the Leon Levy Center for Biography in the City University of New York's Graduate Center in Midtown Manhattan. 
You can read more about bio on our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palmer created our theme music. And until next time, thanks for listening and have a great day. <laughs>